If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do this morning, please turn to John chapter 6. Again, we are in the very next story from the one that we looked at together last week when Jesus fed all the folks. And this week, we are out on the water. So beginning in verse 16 of John chapter 6, I'd like to read through verse 21 as we begin. Now remember, uh, a sign... What a sign is, it's a work or act of Jesus that positions the the witness and helps provide the witness an opportunity for insight into just who Jesus is. So a sign caused a lot of people to turn their eyes upon Jesus for sure. And here we have in our story today, although John doesn't call it explicitly a sign like John has the previous four up until this point in John's gospel. This is, we believe, the fifth sign, and it involves Jesus walking on water. So we begin in verse 16. The text reads, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. A high wind arose, and the sea began to churn. Verse 19, after they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him on board, and at once... The boat was at the shore where they were heading. May God add God's blessing to the reading of God's word. So here we have this this story positioned right after Jesus has fed the multitudes where the bread was served in abundance and so much was left over. And then immediately after, John chooses to tell of a time that the disciples had gotten in the boat without Jesus for some reason. He had gone off to, to pray, the text in between the two stories tells us quickly. The disciples get in the boat and and go on and leave uh, for the other side, and they do. They get stuck in this storm, we assume, pretty soon after the the first story. Now, I remember a time when, uh, you know, I think this was Lewis. We have three sons. They're right down here on the front, and uh, I think it was Lewis, but I don't always remember who and where. It's just I'm getting older. And, uh, but I think this was Lewis. We used to have this Isuzu Rodeo. I married into this car. It was real nice. And it was Leslie Ann's first car out of college. And it was uh, from CarMax. And we had it for 20 years. We loved that car. We just got rid of it last year and or sold it. It's still running. Great car. Anyway, I tell you this because this story involves the rodeo, and it was I, I was taking Lewis to preschool, and he was in this this car seat that probably was the car seats they update them and they become out of date really quickly, and so I don't know that this one was still technically the one he was supposed to be in, and I say that because there was a strap behind it that we never quite figured out how to use, and so we would just stuff it in behind, and I'm, I assure you he was in there snug, I promise, before you start 
judging me. But this strap, we had no idea what it was for, and so we just tucked it behind uh, the car seat. And so this, I say it was probably out of date because I had been tucking that strap in many, many days. But this one day, we were probably in a hurry, and I failed to tuck the strap in. In fact, I failed to do anything with the strap, and the strap was long, and it was outside the door, and I closed the door, and we backed out of our little carport, and then we took off to go to preschool, and all of a sudden, the most vicious hucklebuck you have ever, you can ever imagine started happening, and the rodeo was jumping up and down, and there was a smell of fire, and I, I don't know, I thought we had been, I thought a missile had gotten us. It had not. There was no war in Nashville that day. The strap was under the tire, and it had literally caused the car to not be able to go any further, and we were doing this. And the strap was, although we didn't know what to do with it, it wasn't just nowhere. It was connected with the car seat. So here's Lewis. I don't know. He's four. He's not big now, so he wasn't big then, and all I could hear was my four-year-old smashed up against the window. This car seat is like at 45 degrees, and I don't know how he didn't go through the window. The rodeo was tough, y'all. Strong car, okay? Because it took me a while to realize what had happened, and all my kid is doing is just like, hey, daddy, this is not right not right. I'm not supposed to be like this. Thank goodness I realized what was going on. And he's fine, I think. (laughs) Although that might explain some things. It was crazy. And my kid was scared. (laughs) Like, what in the world is going on? I was right here. I had a donut. I was getting ready to go to school. And all of a sudden, there's fire, and I'm up against the window. It's not supposed to be this way, is what he said. (laughs) Have you ever been afraid? I mean, fear is our motif today in this story. It is the the baseline of what's going on here. And definitely embedded within this story, anytime it is preached, I think it should cause us to consider what we might be afraid of. Right? We sang about it earlier. I hope that you've been directed so far today to consider what it is that might have you um, thinking to yourself, it's not supposed to be this way. Now, these were skilled, several of the disciples were skilled fishermen. So this storm in itself would not have been the, what, what caused them to become, you know, the most afraid. Sure, sure, it would have been concerning, but these, these were fishermen, several of them. They had been in a boat in a storm before, so there's something else going on, and I hope you caught it as we read the story that contributed to their, to their fear. It's when Jesus shows up. And so I want to settle there in this story today and, and, and have us consider something that we looked at last week that helps set, uh, helps this, uh, give us the setting for this story back in verse 4 earlier in the chapter. I alluded to this last week, but John chooses to set these stories, the feeding of the multitudes, moving into this story on the water in the time of Passover, connecting it with the Israelites and their story. We talked about this a little bit last week. 
So John is trying to get the reader to understand the link between the Israelites and Moses and, and what, what's going on here with Jesus and, and his arrival announced by John the Baptist back in chapter 1, what that meant and what that means. Now, if you know the history of the Israelites, you know that after Passover, Pharaoh, the, the, the Israelites were, were captive in Egypt, and after Passover, Pharaoh, this, the, what happened that um, allowed the Israelites to leave Egypt, caused Pharaoh to let them go. But then in Exodus 14, if you know the story, Pharaoh changes his mind, and he decides to get his army together and go after them and catch up with them. And, and here we have in Exodus 14, we have this scene where the Israelites are all at the foot of the Red Sea, and they're scared because here comes the army. Here comes their captors coming to take them again. It was in these moments the Israelites felt peril. They felt anger at Moses for taking them out there. They felt fear for their lives. They were certain that Moses had led them out into the wilderness to die. This is what they said. They said, Moses, is it because there were no grave sites for us in Egypt that you've led us out here just to be slaughtered so that we can just be dead out here in the wilderness? I want to pick up in this story in Exodus 14. You're welcome to turn there or it'll be on the screen. But we have Moses going, encountering the Lord in these moments when he's trying to figure out, what, what are we supposed to do here? People are scared. Here, come, here comes Pharaoh. We're in trouble. And in verse 15, the Lord says to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. Verse 16, as for you, lift up your staff, stretch, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. As for me, I'm going to harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh, all his army and his chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I receive glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Verse 19, then the angel of God who was going in front of the Israelite forces moved and went behind them. The pillar of cloud, which moved from in front of them, moved from in front of them and stood behind them. It came between the Egyptian and the Israelite forces. There was a cloud in darkness. It lit up the night, and neither group came near the other all night long. So we see evidence here in verse, there in verse 20 of God protecting the Israelites from their oppressors. Verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. The Lord drove back the sea with a powerful east wind. All that night and turned the sea into dry land. Now, perhaps you're familiar with this story, but don't let your familiarity with it cause you not to just be amazed at what's going on here. So the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea to dry ground, on dry ground with the waters like a wall to them on their right and their left. The Egyptians set out in pursuit. All Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen and went into the sea after them. During the morning watch, the Lord looked down at the Egyptian forces from the pillar of fire and cloud and threw the Egyptian forces into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve and made them drive with difficulty. Let's get away from Israel, the Egyptians said, because the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. He should have thought about that sooner. Verse 26, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over to the sea. We have Moses doing these signs on the Lord's prompting. Do you see that? So that the water may come back on the Egyptians, on their chariots and horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and at daybreak the sea returned to its normal depth. 
While the Egyptians were trying to escape from it, the Lord threw them into the sea. The water came back and covered the chariots and horsemen, plus the entire army of Pharaoh that had gone after them into the sea. Not even one of them survived. Incredible story. It begins in verse 15 with the question from God, Why are you crying out to me? Why have you forgotten? And so I ask you, church, consider that question with me as we shift back our attention to the story of the disciples in the boat and what's going on here. Let me ask you, do you believe that Jesus rescues Do you believe in Jesus because he does rescue from storms? We see evidence of that in our story in John 6. Or do you believe in Jesus? Do you turn your eyes upon Jesus? Do you find your hope in Jesus? Do you put your trust in Jesus because Jesus is with you even in the storms? Last week I asked you if you believe in Jesus and follow Jesus because of what he can give us, ample provision, feeding of the multitudes resulting in so much left over, or because he is the bread of life. Now the truth is Jesus does provide bountifully for us. Now sometimes it's more directly, more immediately than other times. But as we sat together last week, if you were with us, we were reminded As we sat together around the table with the elements, the Lord's Supper, we were reminded of what God has done ultimately through Jesus and that we will all be provided for ultimately because of who Jesus is. Look back in John 6 with me. Let's back at our text again. Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got in a boat, and started across the sea. Darkness had already set in, but Jesus had not yet come to them. It's an interesting way John phrases it there. It's almost like the reader would have already known this story, referring back to it. Verse 18, a high wind arose and the sea began to churn. Now, the storms of life, friends, don't always subside directly and immediately, right? I fear storms. I do. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by them, but I fear them. It was back in December. I remember it well. We huddled just a few weeks ago in our interior room with the kids in the middle of the night. We actually had a couple of kids' friends sleeping over with us, so we were eight deep in the pantry, huddled together. I almost went out and got the bike helmets. I probably should have. I was wary of what was happening. I fear storms. I do. The unknown that comes from them. I remember, y'all, when we brought Elliot home, he's our 10-year-old. And he, he didn't get to come home with us from the hospital. He was in the NICU for a couple of weeks. And uh, some of you guys have experienced uh, similar. Um, we just had one of our uh, babies in the church come home from the NICU recently. Praise God for that. Uh, everything seems to be great. But Elliot had to, had to stay for a while. And, you know, he was, he was our, our, our second and actually our third. We had a miscarriage between Howell and Elliot. And, uh, and I remember Leslie Ann uh, us coming home without him. And we came home without him in a tornado warning from the hospital. And, y'all, it was, it was madness. There were the sirens going off in Nashville. This was in 2011. And we turned onto our little street in uh, Green Hills at the time. And the, <laughs> the, the siren was going. The, the trees were sideways. And one of the electrical poles had fallen across the street and a transformer was just exploding in the middle of the street. And we had to back up 
in the Isuzu Rodeo, mind you, and go to the next street, drive all the way down it, and come back and get into our house the other, the other way. So here we are without our child, middle of a storm. Leslie's emotions were everywhere. Storms are a big deal. And in our story, it's helpful, I think, for us to realize that the boat, which is keeping the disciples safe from the storm and just being overcome by the waves as they are whipping, a good picture for us to imagine is the church as a boat. Or even the kingdom of God, if you want to take it a little bit further, and what God is doing. And we're in this boat. And in seminary, they they teach you a lot about uh, the different ideas about how God does keep God's hand on how things are and how things are moving. And there's a lot of different theories about just how involved God is in the history of the world and how much agency we have as, as humans. And it's a great debate, one that I would love to continue. And I don't have really any answers, I'm sorry to tell you. But the, 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 the slant on that that was most compelling to me in school was this idea of a boat. And that in the history of the world, particularly in the time since Jesus came, here's how things are. Imagine a boat taking off from New York and it's going to London. And There'll be storms along the way. In fact, whoever's captain of that boat would have a hard time telling you exactly where that boat's going to be at any particular time based on the wind and what the water's doing and which way it takes you here and there. But what is sure, because we have excellent navigational skills amongst our seafaring individuals, what is sure is that boat is going to end up in London. And I like that idea of how God might be, yes, involved and cares about every iota that goes on in God's world. But it also leaves room to explain why God's provision doesn't come immediately or directly all the time. Why suffering does occur. Why things can be going on in Russia and Ukraine as they are now. Why it can be so difficult to be a certain person in any particular country based on the way that we treat one another, based on our own fallenness and our inability thus far to go all in to what Jesus is trying to get us to do. We are a broken people, and yeah, it's hard to make sense of at times. And the hope that we have in Christ, the hope for the church, is that yes, we are in a boat together, and yes, the end is sure. You have to believe that with me. That is all that we have, that what Christ has done to come and die and live and rise again live, die, rise again, is to make everything not just okay, but good in the end, to make everything new. But fear and anxiety and the the waiting that we have to endure together about this cause a great deal of pain and hurt and crazy actions. But for the person who is following and being formed by Jesus, we must know that God ultimately delivers through the storm. That boat gets to London, so to speak. Verse 19, John 6. After they had rowed three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. He was coming near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. Now, this is fascinating, the, what Jesus says here, because it calls our attention back to where Moses and, and his call from God 
It's like we've heard about Atticus's call and where it's going to take him or any of our individual called. Moses was called out by God all the way back in uh, Exodus chapter 3, and you probably know the story. He was, it, it happened while a bush was burning, not burning up, just burning. And it caused great fear in Moses. And God said, Moses, you're going to go and you're going to help my people get out of Egypt and the captivity that they have there. And Moses says, who am I that I should do this? And God said, it's not going to be you doing it. I'm going to do it through you. And Moses says, well, what do I tell the Israelites when I tell them that you've told me to come here and tell them that I'm going to lead you out of Egypt? What should I tell them when they ask, who is it that's told me to come say this? And God says, you know it in Exodus 3.14. I am who I am. Tell them that I am has sent you. I am. It's the same word that Jesus uses with his disciples when they notice him on the water in all of their fear. And I think that John is appealing to his reader, to the audience, to realize that what is happening in Jesus is helping fulfill that which began all the way back in Exodus 3 with Moses, with the Israelites. Out here on the water, Jesus helps relieve the disciples' fear in the storm by coming to them miraculously and not not separating the water and walking through it on dry land. He just went right across the top of it. Take that, Moses. You think that was cool? Look at this. And he says, don't be afraid. I am. It is I. I am who I am. Verse 21. Then they were willing to take him on board. Tough audience. Took a lot to get him permission to get on board. Then the text says, at once the boat was at the shore where they were heading. At once the boat was on the shore where they were heading. Kind of like, I don't know, we made it home even though the transformer was exploding in the street. And then, I I don't remember exactly how many days Elliot was in the NICU, but then all of a sudden he was home. You know, we just kind of get there, don't we? We endure. It's harder at times than others, but the boat was just there all of a sudden. Something else is going on here. I think the disciples realize, because they let Jesus in the boat, they realize something that's very important for us all to realize. And it, it was, it was, I was reminded in the last couple of weeks when I had the opportunity to uh, speak with a really bright high school kid who was really struggling with a lot of big questions in the world. It's a kid who, who did follow, who, who does follow and is being formed by Jesus, but has huge questions about a lot of what's going on in the world right now. And I felt like I did with him what I've done with many people in the past is I encouraged him to read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. It was something that I read around that time that really helped um, me define uh, a lot about my faith in Jesus, a lot of the big questions that I have. And it's in Mere Christianity where C.S. Lewis, amongst many great arguments, goes into his liar, lunatic, or Lord um, analogy where he says, Jesus saying that I am God, rising from the dead, 
it's either a lie or he's crazy or he is who he says he is, right? And I bring this up because I was reminded this week reading a sermon on Tim Keller, by Tim Keller on this very passage of a story I read many years ago by Flannery O'Connor. It's called A Good Man is Hard to Find. And the band can come on back up now. We're closing. But maybe you've read this story. If you hadn't, I encourage you to. I, I think a story that's 70 years old, I, I'm okay to not give, you know, I can, I can spoil it for you because it's 70 years old. But it's an incredible story. It's a family, mother, father, two really fireball, firecracker kids and the father's mother who were going on holiday and they, they have an accident on a very remote street, and they're in trouble, and they've got to have help. And so the next car that comes has got to be the car that helps them. And the next car that came was three gentlemen who had just broken out of the penitentiary, one called the Misfit. And this story does not end well. This story ends with the, the, the fugitives taking the lives of the family. But along the way of, of it culminating in that, the grandmother spends all of her emotional energy trying to convince the misfit that he is not really this way and that there is good in him and he should not be leading his life this way and he should not be taking their lives. And the misfit looks back at grandma and says, Lady, Jesus, because grandma was appealing to his faith in Jesus, even though it wasn't there. She had faith in Jesus. She says, he says to her, Jesus has thrown everything off balance. If Jesus did what he said, then there's nothing to do but throw everything away and follow him. But if he didn't, then there's nothing to do but enjoy the few minutes you have left by killing someone or burning down their house or doing something terribly mean, which is how I've lived my life. But let me tell you, there's hardly any pleasure in that. This incredibly gripping scene as he, the misfit and his partners continue to do the harm that he confesses there's hardly any pleasure in. And he confesses it because he just can't get there with Jesus. Although while saying he can't get there in his faith, he admits that it's either true or it's not. So I'm asking you, church, this morning to consider that Jesus doesn't just come into our lives to feed us or to help us out of the storm, although he does help us. Jesus is the I am. And our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus. He has thrown truly everything off balance. And he is the only one who can balance it back. So I ask you, church, this morning, it is imperative that you and I do what the disciples do in verse 21. And we've got to let him in our boat. We have to let Jesus in. I don't know where you are with that this morning. Maybe it's you need to do it again. Maybe you've forgotten. I forget. I need you to help me remember. Maybe you've never, ever considered Jesus as the I am. He was just some really good man who did a lot of good things that people like John recorded. That doesn't hold up. He's either who he says he is 
or he's not. And in this little story on the sea, on the way to Capernaum, he lets us know. It is I. Don't be afraid. Let him in your boat, folks. Let him in your boat.